0: Well, hey, Mosaic, how we doing? Well, I am, uh, I am pumped. Man, I'm pumped. Five years. We turned five years old today. And uh, so it's been one of those weeks of just a lot of reflecting, you know, like just thinking back and all God's done the last five years. And uh, man, so I'm, I'm overwhelmed. I'm, I'm overjoyed. I'm, I'm excited. And uh, so this morning, though, to begin, I want to begin by, by sharing a story. And a story by a guy by the name of, about a guy by the name of Patrick White. Patrick White was a, a famous novelist from Australia. He wrote in the 1950s, 60s. We have we love Australia. Yes, that's right. Okay, I was like, who in the? Okay, that makes sense. But he wrote in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and he is the only Australian to ever win the Nobel Prize for Literature. He's very, very gifted. And Patrick White was was. Uh, Openly gay, he was a very outspoken atheist, and by all accounts, he's a pretty puffed-up, arrogant, full-of-himself kind of guy. So when you read his autobiography, uh, it's a very thick book that spares no detail just about how amazing Patrick White is by Patrick White. But you know, in the story, though, he, he, or in his, his novel, he does tell a story about a certain time in his life, and the first time I heard it, I got to tell you, it, it took my breath away, and it reminded me why we do what we do. And he tells a story about when he was living in a small farm just outside Sydney with his partner, Manily. And by this time, he was, he was world famous. He was a national hero because he won the Nobel Prize. And he was basically living off the, the influence and the wealth that he had accumulated for himself. And it had been raining for days, and the farm had essentially turned to mud. And the, the steps that you would have to take to get to the other, down to the other side of the property had been covered in, in moss and, and mud. And he had to go feed the dogs that were they kept in a shed down there. And so he put on his, his, you know, his boots and his rain jacket, and he got this tray of dog food and went out the back door, and he started to make his way down to where the dogs were kept. And he got about halfway, and his, his feet slipped out from under him, and, and he said, I, I, I hit, I landed on my tailbone, you know, really hard. I had pain shooting up my spine. I was in agony. I was covered in, in dog food and mud. And he said, I looked up at that, that violent, black, bruised sky. As these big raindrops fell on my face, and he said he started to giggle to himself, and it was like in that moment, like somebody spoke directly into his soul and said, who the hell do you think you are? And it shook him up, and he said he rolled over on all fours, and he crawled back up the hill and in, into the back door, and he said to his partner, Manley, he said, we have to go to church on Sunday. And they did. And and the sad part is they did. And they went to uh, the Church of England church that was right around the corner and they got there and they sat in the back row. And that day the minister got up and he said, I I was at the county fair and saw a lot of you yesterday at the county fair. And I saw that you were participating, many of you, in the jelly bean counting contest. And because that's gambling, you're going to need to repent before you participate in Holy Communion which is funny ridiculous, but he says this in his novel. He said, At that moment, Manly and I both realized that any faith that we might have had would have to remain an entirely private matter. You know, and I don't know what it does to you when you hear a story like that, but for me it breaks my heart. You know, here God trips up this incredibly influential man, Nobel Prize winner for literature, has a huge influence. God trips him up, speaks into his heart, levels him, brings him to God's people, and God's people have nothing for him. You know, and, and it's stories like that that reminds me of, of why. I mean, it's stories like that that, that led us to start this community uh, just over five years ago. Because I'd, I'd love to be able to say that, you know, it's kind of a funny story. It's sad that that happened, but it's, it's a unique one. Uh, it's, it's a rare one. Uh, but we, we all know better. Uh, there are so many stories like that represented in this room because I hear them all the time. Uh, every week I hear them. In fact, there's some people that are going to be hearing this message or watching it on their phone or on their laptop. And they're in Lincoln, but they're not in here this morning precisely because they carry the scars and the wounds of religious people. You know, and in fact, there's a, there's a poll uh, done just a, not, not all that long ago. And they asked Americans, they said, who do you fear the most? And they had a survey. You know, want to know what the number two answer was? Serial killers. Care to guess what the number one answer was? Evangelical Christians. You know, which kind of almost, I'm almost led to laugh um, if I didn't also want to cry. <laughs> you know, and, and so it just causes me to think, you know, as I've been thinking back as a church and as we look back and as we look forward. Like, there's just a, a question that's just been at the forefront of my mind, and that is, uh, how in the world did we get so far off? How, how in the world, as a people who bear the name of Christ, who sinners ran to, by the way, right, who is a friend of sinners, uh, prostitutes, adulterers, thieves, they, they ran to him, and yet they, they, many don't want anything to do with us. How, how in the world did we get so far off? And I, and I think to begin to answer that question, we actually have to rewind the clock a little back, uh, back a little ways and look at something hap- that happened in 1925 that would forever change our culture and specifically uh, our church, the church in the West, and our relationship with culture. And that was uh, Scopes Monkey Trial. Scopes Monkey Trial was the culmination of growing frustration um, as Christianity was kind of starting to lose its grip on the broader culture in the U.S., And basically what it was is you had the government and and school districts came and said, look, we don't want to teach uh, creation in the public schools anymore. Um, If we have to choose between creationism and evolutionism, uh, the science suggests the one that we can actually prove, you can't prove creation, but the science suggests that this is actually the one that's right. Uh, And so we just don't think that creation has any part in the school system. We want to teach Darwinian um, evolution. And the government basically said we got to go with this, you know? Uh, And so no more teaching creation in the schools. And it was a very big public thing. And and the church reacted. And, And the church had enjoyed, at that point, being very powerful, very influential, being a center, a pillar of American culture. And basically the church, the way the church reacted to that is they said, look, if you're not going to validate our beliefs and our faith system as a government and as school districts, then we're going to take our ball and go home. And that, for generally speaking, that's, that's pretty much what the church did. And what ended up happening is we went out and created Christian versions of everything that already existed. And one of the things that you see historically is one of the things that immediately started to be birthed in the years after that were things like Christian schools, Christian universities, Christian publishing companies. I mean, you go to like Wheaton College, great college in, uh, in Chicago. I've had a number of friends go there. It's a great school. But if you go there, you will see a big building that looks like a castle. And on the side of that building says built in 1927, right? Just a couple years after Scopes of Monkey Trial. And this is what ended up happening. We started creating this happening. And this was basically what ended up happening. This was the birth of the Christian subculture. And we created all kinds of Christian stuff. And what happened was it created this us versus them kind of mindset. And for the first time, what, it was very possible. It was very possible to grow up in a Christian home, right? And with Christian principles, Christian family, uh, go to a Christian church, Christian youth group surrounded by Christian friends, go to Christian grade school, graduate from there, go to a Christian high school, then you go go to a Christian university, and then you can even go to a Christian seminary or go on and get your doctorate in Christian studies. And then after you graduated, you could go work and teach in a Christian school or work for a Christian business or a Christian ministry, and you could essentially go your entire life without ever having to learn how to interact with, befriend, love, engage anyone who doesn't already believe like you do. And this has so, is so impacted the way that we think about and understand church in, in ways. It, it's so hugely significant. Because here's, here's what ended up happening is essentially we started to view the church as something, the church started to understand itself as something that was kind of altogether separate from the broader culture. And so the way that we often think about like culture in general is kind of in terms of domains. So to illustrate this in like a very simple way, as we think of culture like this, you've got all these different, Domains. You've got, you know, like the political domain, you've got the educational domain, uh, you've got business domain, arts domain, you've got social services domain, uh, you name it, all different kinds of domains. And what the church did is in the process of divorcing ourselves from the broader culture, we went and created our own, our own silo over here, right, as we engage in all the different Christian things. And this has hugely, hugely impacted our thinking. What's ended up happening is what ended up happening is it all became about the box. As if that's what it means to be a Christian. Right? Faith, worship, mission, all of it came centralized right here. And we thought, we actually thought that maybe just maybe if we could build the box right, they would come. We would impact culture. We would maybe even change the world. You know, so, and, and so we work really hard to pull all the people from all these different domains over into our box. And every once in a while, you know, we'll launch a, a missile over into another silo, <laughs> you know. But we get focused so much. And we, I mean, this is what we've done. I mean, you guys know, I mean, I've, I've shared this before. But a couple years ago, I graduated from seminary. Um, I've taken classes at four seminaries now. had a great seminary experience. But I'll tell you, much of, gen, like, seminary, what they're teaching, generally speaking, is all about this. It's all about the box. You know, so we, you know, things like, uh, you know, here's how the programs that you need in that box, right? Here's the policies that you need to, to make. Here's how you feed people, organize people, educate people. Essentially, here's how you get them in the box, and here's how you keep them in the box. You know, and I've had the chance over the last 10 years to go to a, a number of Christian conferences for, for leaders and pastors, some of those being very big, you know, thousands of pastors and leaders, some of them very small, keynote sessions, breakout sessions, and, and you know, some of it's good stuff. You know, and I've, I've done it, uh, all different kinds of things. So we've looked at music strategy, uh, church polity, team management, savvy marketing techniques, social media strategy, church planning strategy, you name it. And, you know, there's nothing inherently evil in any of those things. I want us to be intentional and strategic in everything we do as a church. But again, for the most part, most of the things I just listed are just rearranging this. It's just rearranging the box. And what we are very quickly realizing, it's taken us a long time, but it's coming to a head uh, in the church in the West, is that that doesn't work. You know, we have largely, the church in general has largely lost uh, its voice. Um, And in some cases, I would suggest for very good reason. Uh, The U.S. now is one of the largest mission fields in the world. We receive more Christian missionaries from all over the world than almost any other nation. We can't plant churches fast enough to even just keep on par with how many die and close their doors every year. Um, Almost every single denomination is reporting decline. And some of it very significant and increasingly rapid uh, decline. We in the U.S. I mean, we have more Christian schools, universities, businesses, books, bookstores, ministries—you name it—radio stations than any other country in the world. And generally speaking, the church in the West has come to a screeching halt. And that's not happening everywhere. In fact, there's places in the world where you're seeing Book of Acts kind of multiplication, like viral. Life change, viral planting of churches. I mean, just incredible biblical proportions kind of stuff in places like South America and China and Korea. But I will tell you something they're not doing this. We're the only ones. And we're figuring out rather quickly this doesn't work. Not only is it not effective, but it's not biblical. You know, and so I think it raises a pretty important, significant question, and that is, well, what is then? Because for many of us, this is the only thing that we know. Like, if you spent any time in church growing up, this is this is what you saw. It's what's been modeled for you. It's what we're teaching people in seminaries and conferences. You're swimming in it, whether you realize it or not. All right? But it raises the question. I think is what what exactly should, ought we to be doing? You know, like if God has a scorecard. What is that scorecard, right? What does God measure, right? When we stand before God, what exactly is he going to want to talk about with us? And and so to answer that question, I just want to look at a few verses briefly. And this is in Matthew 28. This is the end of Matthew's gospel. right, these are the last recorded words of Jesus, right? He has done a lot there's a lot we're told that he did so many things if it was all written down we wouldn't have enough books to cram it all in right but this is in there and these are the last parting words jesus has for those who would follow after him and this is what he says and we'll just begin in 18 then jesus came to them and he said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. He says, go. Go and make disciples. All right, guys, this is after all the miracles, all the sermons, all the teachable moments, after the calling of the disciples. Right, after the prediction of his death, after the crucifixion, after his resurrection, after all of that, Jesus lands the plane here. Right? He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right? I'm going and I'm gonna give it to you in my in the Holy Spirit. So go and do what I did. And make disciples. Right? That's that's it. Right? That is the 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 ultimate scorecard. It, it is our command, it is our calling, it is our job, it is our invitation, it is our privilege to go and make disciples. Everything else that we do should be an overflow of this goal. Right? So, so why do we give generously when we see needs in our city? Right? Why do we work to be a part of initiatives of justice and speak up for the oppressed and reach out to the marginalized? And why do we seek to love people, whether or not they believe what we believe, whether or not we feel they're deserving of love? Right? Why do we seek to be ministers of, of peace? I mean, wh- why do we do all that stuff? All of it should be because, well, that's what disciples do. Our job is to to be a disciple and to make disciples who live in the kingdom rhythm of Jesus. And the problem is (laughs) that can't happen here. It doesn't. It's got to be embedded in life-on-life relationship in the everyday stuff of life. We can't do it in here. But man, Lord knows we've tried, and we keep trying. It's like the only thing we know. It's a, it's a, it's a, we're a one-trick pony. We just keep going like, we just need more fog in here. We need cooler lights, better sound system. You know, our, our pastor just needs to be hipper. Let's get him some skinnier jeans. We're going to change the world. <laughs> Doesn't work. Doesn't work. So, so what do we mean when we use this language of being a disciple? What is that? What is, what is, what is being a disciple making disciples? Right? And we've got a working definition that we use. And if you're here in the spring, you've heard this before. You'll hear it many other times, I'm sure, in the future of our church. Right? And we take it straight from the words of Jesus when he called uh, Andrew and Peter to himself. And it's just a great, succinct picture of what a disciple is that we see fleshed out in the rest of the Gospels. And he said to them, he said, look, come and follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Right, and there's three, just three succinct things there that's illustrated in the statement. First, come and follow me. Right, A disciple is somebody who is following Jesus. Right? That doesn't necessarily mean sitting on your butt in church. That doesn't necessarily even accomplish that. You know what I mean? Come and follow me, and I will make you. Right? A disciple is somebody who is being transformed, being changed. It's a lifelong journey of becoming more like Jesus. And thirdly, I will make you fishers of men. Right? A disciple is somebody who is committed to the mission, the mission of Jesus. Right? And that can't happen in the box. And it was never it was never meant to. Right, disciples who follow after Jesus figure something out eventually. Right? And they understand that to be a disciple because being a disciple is inherently missional in nature. It is it is sent, right? The other another version of the great commission in John, Jesus says, look, just as a father has sent me, so now I'm sending you. I'm sending you. Go, get out of here. Go make disciples already. And we keep trying to, like, gather them, cram them into the box. Go, just as the Father sent me, so now I'm sending you. Right? And what the disciples figure out sooner or later is that the church does not run this way. The church runs this way. The church is it's everywhere. It's not just on Sunday morning. Right? You, you take the church with you everywhere that you go. Wherever you are, the church is Monday through Saturday, right? Church is is not it's not an adjective, right? It's an identity. It's a verb, right? You you church everywhere you go, right? You church in your neighborhood. You church in your family, right? You church at work. You church at home. You even church at church, right? It's a completely different way of thinking and of being in the world. And 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 it's friends, if, if we could, if we could get this. If we could get this, it would, it would change everything. I mean, we, we wouldn't be able to contain what we would see God do in and through this church. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have a box big enough to. we'd just have to keep sending people and planting churches because we couldn't manage it. And Lord, may it be so. But man, just to put my cards on the table, if this is the game that we're going to play and just going to make it about the box, we're going to invest Our time and our energy and our resources, sitting in the box and talking to one another and singing songs until Jesus comes back. I'm out. You know, we might as well just close the doors Uh, because it was never meant to be about that. You know, and, and the beautiful thing is, is we've we've been very fortunate as a church. I mean, God has been incredibly good to us, and 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 we've seen we've seen glimpses of this. We really have. It's like a foretaste, you know. And, and I think some of those things are worthy of celebration. So every year, like at our birthday, I like to to just share some things that I think are worth celebrating. All right? One of those things is uh, we're still here. I think that's a cool, you know. Like, um, statist- hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. So statistically, uh, I, I don't know where this stat comes from, but I read it everywhere. So I'm just assuming that it's true. But but statistically, what I, what I read everywhere is that 80% of new churches have to close their doors by year five. So we're five. We made it, guys. So I think that's worthy of celebration. Um, another <clears throat> is, uh, you know, that we, we've just seen God grow this community and do such a cool thing. I mean, just look around. It's, it's just amazing to be in the room with you guys. You know, like if you were on the clock back, you want to throw that photo up five and a half years ago? Um, this was Mosaic. This was all of Mosaic. This was our very first gathering. Um, it doesn't really look like everybody's pretty keyed in to what I'm saying. I think Jeff, <laughs> Jeff Pearson is like, this is totally not going to work, Pastor Doritos. Um, you know, but God has, has just done such an incredible work. And, and this morning, you know, we get, to, we get to gather across three worship services and multiplications in our city. Uh, and that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, another thing... Um you know if you've been around Mosaic you know that we are very passionate about the gospel of God's grace. And man do we fly that flag and we beat that drum. And so this week I was just kind of wanted to get a feel for for the the reach of that message and how many people are hearing it and tuning in and it's a lot more than I I thought. Uh this month uh, the Mosaic app uh has now been downloaded over on over it's on over 2000 devices which is pretty cool. Um I hopped on our podcast to see how many people have listened in, and there's uh, 60,000 times people have listened to messages at Mosaic. And I, I saw that, and I was like, well, that's, that's pretty cool. You know, that's, that's a lot. And then it dawned on me. I was like, wait a second. That doesn't count, like, the videos. And so I went over on, on Vimeo, and our, our videos have been keyed up over 156,000 times. Um, so that's pretty crazy. That's 200,000 times people have heard this, this, this message of grace that we preach so passionately here pretty cool Uh, another thing that i think is pretty cool about our community is is how young we are and we're multi-generational and that's good but man we've got a lot of people a lot of millennials who are connected here i don't even really like that language but it's kind of everywhere but but so last weekend i was at a a prayer retreat with 50 other leaders from our city and and pastors and we're praying for lincoln and uh it was interesting a lot of the pastors almost all of them were talking about just the fact that the millennials are gone from their communities, and they don't know how. To, and they <laughs> hearing them talk about millennials was pretty awesome because they talked about you guys, millennials, like you are an alien life form from like <laughs> beyond Mars, and they just can't figure out the code, you know. And, it, and so, you know, it's really cool to look around and just see so many young people that are in process that are following after Jesus, and I think that's worthy of, of celebration. Um, another one that I'm I'm particularly proud of is you know the we're very passionate about investing in the next generation of kids and doing that well. And I will tell you, we have not always done that well. Uh, when we began, we were in a concrete room that was like a half a block away from the worship space. And we'd guests would come in, and they'd be like, hey, where do we take our kids in the middle of winter? It's like, you got to walk a block that direction and walk a block back. And they'd go in there, and what they'd see is a concrete room with some filthy used carpet that we rolled out. You know, and the dividers that Brian had made at home and spray painted, which chip when you take them apart every week. And so there's paint chips all over the floor. And, and most of them would bring their kids back from the worship center, and we'd never see them again. Um, but now, you know, it's just so cool under uh, Libby's leadership, and Shelby and their teams um, just have done such a phenomenal job. And I think investing in our kids is one of the best things that, that we do as a church. Um, another one is, you know, we're not a huge church um, but we do seek to be generous and to invest in kingdom things. And um, we, we, over the last five years, we have sent out over $100,000 to help plant churches like Mosaic all over the country and to meet needs in our city. That's pretty cool. Now, last year alone, we were able to invest $45,000 just in local church multiplication, um, which is significant for a community our size. And, we were, of course, the biggest part of that was planting Mosaic at the Bay. Uh, we multiplied uh, which, just so you know, less than 4% of churches in the U.S. ever do. Uh, so that's pretty cool and, and pretty significant. And, you know, of course we've grown, and, and you know, we've gone from, think at the end of fir- the first year, we had like 150 people. Uh, after the second year, we were at about 250 people. After the third year, we had about 320 people that were coming, and, and now we've just gone up. And I'm not sure exactly where we are. I think we typically have maybe 400-ish on the weekends, but we have about 600-ish, it seems, that call Mosaic Home, um, that just kind of like come through like a couple times a month, and some of you know who you are, you know? Um, but that's pretty cool, you know? And, and of course, the most important thing, the, the most important metric, and the one that matters the most to me, is is the stories of life change. Um, there have been so many people who who have bumped into Jesus in this community, and who will never be the same. And because we're young, some of them leave us, and they move, Uh, And they carry that with them, and we celebrate that. But Many of you, many of them are here uh, today. And it's awesome. But, okay, so all of that is worthy of celebration. But if I'm being really honest and showing my cards, I also realize that some of those things, some of those metrics and things that we're counting and celebrating are really just this. And it's exciting. Um, But at the same time, you know, for my own part, I... To be honest, like some of those those metrics, like they just don't do it for me anymore. Because I'm just realizing that just how limited the impact is, you know, in the box. You know, and so I, I want to celebrate those things, but I also want to be very conscious and aware together as we move forward and look forward, that for us as a church, I mean the things that I'm more excited about now, the things where I want to see us invest the best of our time and our energy and our resources is not in having a really cool, well put together box but in this, right? In empowering the church to be the church right where the church already is, to unleash it on our city and love our city well, you know, to to focus on those disciple-making environments where we really are following after Jesus together and on mission in our city together. And one of those things for us, one of the big emphasis moving forward is on missio groups, which are essential missional communities of disciples, helping one another grow and engage our city in mission. And I'm gonna be entirely honest with you guys you know, if in five years, when Mosaic turns 10, if I have to choose between having a church of a thousand, you know, in our box, woohoo, good for us, a thousand, you know, but only one in five are actually engaged in a disciple making environment, being a disciple who makes a disciple on mission to our city, if I have to choose between a church of a thousand where only one in five are actually doing this, or a church that is exactly the same size as we are now, where the vast majority, 80, 90%, are engaged in doing this well, I will choose the latter every single time. And so for me, what I want to see for us and the numbers I'm paying attention to is how many people we are moving into those environments. This is so much more important. This is where Jesus was, and this is where Jesus is. This is where discipleship happens. This is where impact happens. You know, and so... This morning, right, I, I, I want to I usher a challenge to us as a church. Right? Because when we talk about disciple-making, we talk about having an impact and changing our city and all these things, it can feel a little bit overwhelming. It's like, I can't change the world. I can't fix the foster care system. I can't feed all the hungry mouths in our county. I can't stop human trafficking. I can't do those things. And sometimes my fear is, is in that from that place, sometimes as a result, we never really do anything because we can't do everything. And so my challenge for you, and my challenge for all of us is this year, that you, will, you would commit to simply doing it for one. Right, just one. And you do for just one what you wish you could do for everyone. Right, you, you engage right where you are. And where do you start? Start right where you are. Right? the church is already deployed. Right? It's already, unless, unless you're one of that minority that like, grew up in the Christian ghetto and you're still in like, that bubble, in which case you need to repent and get the heck out of the box. All right? But for most of us, that's not us. Right? We're there. You're already there. There are people in your sphere of influence right now who need to know the life that is in Jesus. And let's be honest, it doesn't matter how much we kill it in this space, they're never walking through those doors. And so we go to them. We take the church to them. And I challenge you to do it just for one. And, man, if you, if you think that one is not significant, right, and you, you underestimate the impact of just impacting one life, to see the impact, all you have to do is look around this room. One of the things, one of the things that we would say pretty regularly when we first started Mosaic, because I would say, because I believed it to be true, i say, man, I, I believe that some of our most influential leaders some of the people who are going to have some of the biggest impact in our city and are going to lead us in the future, they don't know Jesus yet. And so we're going to, we need to go to them. And we need to start praying for them right now. And the crazy thing is, and the cool thing is, is five years in, we can look around, and it's happening, friends. All right, one of my favorite stories that you know, we've shared a number of times is Elliot's story. You know, and Elliot messaged me, and he said, Hey, I'm an atheist. I hear you're the pastor that hangs out with atheists. Uh, which is one of the greatest compliments I've ever received. He said, uh, I don't believe in any of that stuff. But he said, I'm just at this point in my life where some of my friends who are atheists are really struggling. Some of them I'm just realizing are not very good people. They're not very happy. And I've got these two people in my life. They're two of the most wonderful people I've ever known. And they've become very good friends. And they're so cool. And they're Christians. And it's messing with my head. (laughs) <laughs> so can we get together? And, you know, and so we got together. And he's like, you just want to make it clear. I don't believe any of this, but I feel at the very least I should come hang out. Can an atheist come hang out at your church? Like, Dude, yes, come on. You know, and, and so he, he came. And, and I will never forget, to make a long story short, he started hanging out. He met you. He connected to Jesus' church. Jesus did what only, you know, God can do. And changed his life. And I'll never forget being down at the coffee house with Elliot in and, and this packed coffee house. And the waterworks are flowing. Like we're, and, and he commits his life to Christ. And we were both just bawling like babies in the middle of the coffee house. It's the coolest thing. All right, so Elliot commits his life to Christ. Goes through our protege program. Right? Starts serving and leading. And then a few months ago says, you know what? We need to step up our prayer game at Mosaic. And I want to start a prayer ministry. Right? So here's the thing. On Sundays when we have people in the back who pray for you, that's Elliot, you know what I mean? Like, Elliot the atheist is one who started that ministry, and half the time, he's the one praying for you. You can't make this stuff up. You know, you can't write that story. But that is what God's doing. That's what God does. And now Elliot's leading us. You know, another great example, Evan Bartles, leading us in music up here most weeks. It just melted our face. He's going to come do it again in a few minutes. Yeah, I will never forget, when he showed up, that guy, he did, he, he did not know what he... Believed about God, it wasn't good, and about church, you know. But he was invited by somebody into Mosaic, and somebody invited him to start playing a little bit up here. I'll never forget because he looked like a deer in the headlights. He was so afraid of church people, and you know, good reason. But like he's played a lot of time on stage, like he's totally comfortable in the bars where people are—they can't spell anymore and they're screaming racial slurs. He's fine with that. (laughs) But put him in front of church people on the stage, you know, he's just terrified and, and tentative. And now you watch him. I mean, would any of us ever use the word tentative to describe what he does up here? Like, he, he's incredible. He's leading us to the throne, you know, like week in and week out. There are times when he gets up here and he speaks, and he is, he's not speaking, he is preaching. And there are times when he speaks in leading us, and it changes the temperature of the room. You know, and just so you know, a lot of the songs that we sing, there are some of Mosaic's favorite songs that we sing. Evan wrote those. You know, and now last month, Evan, uh, Evan started seminary, and his dream is to plant a church, and I believe he will, and I think he's going to do great. You know, what is that? You're <laughs> Just incredible. You know, and once again, somebody who, who didn't believe, and he's now leading us, and there's so much more of that to happen, and it started just with one. One person inviting him. One person loving on him. One person praying for him, and that's where it starts, right? And Just, you know, that's my story, too, all right, I'm up here because a guy named Brian saw this cocky, defiant teenager and said, that kid needs Jesus, and decided to start walking alongside me and loving on me. Changed my life, and here we are. All right, there is power in one. And can you imagine what would happen if all of us this year just got to be a part of one story? And I know God is the one who saves. God is the one that draws men and women to himself. God is the only one who can change a heart. I know that. But man, he likes to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. If we all got to be a part of that and committed just to pray and to love and to be present in this space and keep our eyes open. God, who's my one? Where do you want me loving? Where do you want me praying? And start being there. I. We wouldn't be able to hold it back what God would do. And So that is my challenge to us. So here's what we're going to do. Last thing I want to happen is for you to you know, walk out of here and and not respond to this. You know, church people are good at doing that. But I want to give you an opportunity to respond. And so what we're going to do is we're going to close in worship as we normally do. But if you're willing, I I, I want you to commit to this, if this is something you're willing to to live into. And if you are willing, what we're going to do is uh, on the other side of this is a map, a map of our city. And that map represents our mission field. It's the reason that we're here. It's the reason that Mosaic exists. And if you are willing, what I want you to do is over on the table over here is we've got, uh, we've got ink for you to make a thumbprint. And I want you to put it on that map. You know, maybe it's, you put it on your place in your neighborhood where your home is. Maybe you put it on your place of work. The truth is, chances are for a lot of us, we don't know who our one is yet. But it represents a commitment to start looking and to start praying.